Welcome to the inaugural episode of Pure Normal. I'm Dr. Mike Heiser, and on this podcast, again, this is our first episode, we are going to be studying, taking a look at, discussing peer-reviewed research about the paranormal. And we're going to cast a wide net. When we think paranormal here, we think really of anything that would be popularly construed as out of the ordinary, paranormal, something, again, that transcends Uh, the boundaries of science and sort of our normal life experience. Uh, Believe it or not, the kind of things that you will see on the X-Files, that you will hear uh, many shows like Coast to Coast AM talk about, those kind of topics, that stuff actually gets studied in real laboratories by real scientists. Real scholars do real research on it, and it gets published. But a lot of people are just simply not aware of that fact. And so we're going to be dedicated to taking you uh, sort of into the ivory tower, at least as it relates to those sorts of subjects, and have a discussion about them. So in terms of, you know, kind of what our format's going to be, what we want to do, again, is cast a wide net. We're going to be talking about things like parapsychology. You know, under that umbrella, there'd be things like ESP, NDEs, you know, near-death experiences, OBEs, out-of-body experiences, you know, some of the, the things that you would typically associated with, with the paranormal. Uh, we're also going to include Fortean material. Again, this is sort of weird stuff that just kind of happens in the natural world, sort of anomalies uh, in all sorts of areas. And then maybe some cryptozoology. You know, th- is there real research that goes into something like sea serpents, Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot? Uh, again, has material been published that's relevant to those things? And what did that you know, research show? And then, of course, UFOs uh, would be a a big topic to to discuss, alien abductions. Again, we want to talk about the real science and the real research. And that's what makes the podcast different. No one is doing that. No one is taking their listenership into these areas and into the real research that gets published under peer review. So when we do that, we're going to be asking, hey, you know, what did the scientist or the scholar study? What were they trying to find out? What were they probing? I mean, what, what was the goal of their research? Where did it get published? Again, so that you can find some of this uh, research yourself. What were the findings? Uh, what did the researchers recommend as far as, hey, here's what we should do next? And then, of course, what are the implications specifically for a non-material reality, a theistic reality. Again, those who would believe in a genuine spiritual world, believe in God, and also possibly Christian and biblical worldview implications. So along with me, we're going to have a few uh, co-hosts, and I want to introduce two of them uh, to you today, and then uh, we can get their backgrounds a little bit. And then also two that are not present today, I want to mention as well. But let's just uh, start in. Let, let's take care of the ones who are not here. Uh, we're going to have occasionally Brian Gadawa with us as a co-host. Many of you will be familiar with his name because of his uh, fiction series. Again, his his fantasy series. Again, some of his his own research on things like divine counsel. But Brian, of course, his background is in film uh, and you know being a film critic, script writer, living in Hollywood, that sort of thing. So he'll have. 
uh, a lot of good things to say about how these things get treated in film and what the messaging is. And then Chris Putnam will, again, be an occasional co-host. Chris is, again, well-known in the Christian community for having uh, written a book about uh, the you know, paranormal worldview. So Chris will be with us, but actually present with us today, we have Trey Strickland and... Natalina Stewart. So Trey, we'll, we'll start with you. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself and just tell everybody how you got interested in paranormal stuff. Give us a little bit of your backstory. Sure. First, I just want to say, Mike, since I'm working with you, you have me reading more material than I've ever read <laughs> before. So well, I apologize. I'm basically a scholar now. So I, I need a PhD or something from you because maybe you just need a medal you know for person something, something yes no but i've always been interested in the paranormal as a young child believe it or not i have memories all the way to an infant i remember having particular smells i remember hearing things i i've never questioned that the paranormal existed i've always felt it i've had many experiences um i've had two outer body experiences by force, by practice. I actually attempted to do that and I was successful twice and it scared me so bad. I've learned my lesson. How um, old were you? Um, in my twenties. Okay. I was in my twenties. Um, in my forties. So you were old uh, enough to know better. <laughs> I was old enough to know better, but I was still on that edge of seeking and, and, and experimenting and, um, because I, I knew it was there. Um, I did, I don't question it. And so accessing it and experiencing it, uh, was something I was interested in. So I actively, you know, seeked it out and was successful. And I've gone to many UFO conferences. I've, um, I, I've met a lot of people. I've, I went to the 50th anniversary in Roswell, New Mexico during that. Uh, yeah. Um, so Did you have an out of body experience at any of the conferences? <laughs> no, 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 no. Maybe this, during the parade in Roswell. No, like no, that. no, no. I'm, I'm a sane person. So I, and that's what gets me, uh, my, you know, I, I, this is why I'm so drawn to this podcast because it's real scholarly work uh, and people that I trust that are trying to get to the bottom of this stuff with real explanations. I don't question it if it exists. I'm already there. So now I just want to know why or or if there's some scientific evidence behind it, you know, that interests me. But um, I even used to run a website called AlienHunter.com. And believe it or not, it's about 10 years ago. There was I wanted to do a TV show and pitch it with another colleague of mine. And we wanted to go around to these different conferences like MUFON or all mm -hmm. these different conferences and actually report and cover the scene. Because there's still no credible news coverage of these of this type of scene. And so that's kind of the angle we were trying to, to come at it. And, and um, so that's why I'm glad 10 years later, now we have this podcast. So I've always been on this track. And so I'm just at the right place at the right time to actually be a part of this. So. Yeah. that Some of that, you know, is, you know, resonates with me. I mean, I've never had uh, what I would call, I think, well, let me rephrase it. I've, I've never really had, I think, what anybody else would call a, a paranormal experience. I mean, I've had a few uh, what I would call uh, providential experiences that were, were really striking um, that, you know, when they, when they happened, I sort of knew that something 
for lack of a better term, intelligent was happening. It wasn't, wasn't a random sort of thing. So I, I've had a couple of those, uh, you know, I, I have had one, uh, uh, precognitive, uh, dream, that sort of thing. But again, nothing really, you know, that, that can align with the kind of thing you were, were talking about, but I've always been interested, but I've never sort of been, uh, somebody who would, would experiment, um, you and know, I, in these sorts of things. And I've got, Many, many, many stories. I, I've had good friends, reliable friends, concrete people that I trust that have had UFO experiences, glowing golden orbs right in front of them. So I know this stuff exists. I don't even question it. I believe 100% that it does. The paranormal realm exists 100%. Mm-hmm. Supernatural. Absolutely. Well, how about you, Natalina? The listeners will know you, of course, from your own you know, website and podcast, Extraordinary Intelligence. So tell us a little bit about uh, your history and your interest. Again, the, the backstory here. Well, sure. Um, I'm, I'm so thrilled to be part of this because, you know, I have had a fascination with the paranormal and the supernatural all my life. I can remember being a little girl and, you know, everybody would rush home to watch cartoons from school and I would rush home to catch reruns of In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was that was always my thing. And I was yeah. always fascinated but fearful, you know, because it was always presented as something kind of scary but interesting. And um, and, and so I, I had this interest throughout my whole life that led up into adult uh, adulthood I kind of got really wrapped up in in sort of more of a new age type perspective for a large part of my young adulthood. And I was searching for answers because like Trey, I knew that the supernatural and the paranormal were real. I just didn't have an understanding of what it meant, where it was coming from. Um, about 2008, I decided to take all of these questions that I was having and turn it into a website to kind of just invite the, you know, the larger internet audience to have this journey with me. And that's how extraordinaryintelligence.com was born. And I wasn't a Christian or anything at that time, but I kind of built up a pretty solid audience of fellow seekers and searchers. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I also experimented with out of body. I, I had one instance where I, did start to leave my body and it terrified me so much that I managed to stop it. Um, mm-hmm. It was, it was horrifying. You didn't want it, to run into Trey. You know, I've had two. My first one was so terrifying. Same experience. It scared me so much yes. that I immediately came back. But, but then as it went on, I was like, oh, I got to do that again. You know what? Oh. I can't be scared and just force myself to break through it. And I did. And then that was even more scarier. So I haven't done it since. I, you know, for me, it was so incredibly terrifying that the very, I was from that point on worried that I was going to accidentally do it because it was just so scary. I remember just feeling like I was falling. It, you know, like when people think of out of body experience, you always have that sort of imagery of being lifted up and out of your body. For me, it was like falling and I felt like I was falling through space and I could feel the pressure on my face and my teeth were grinding. It was, it was terrifying. Um, but then, you know, a few years later, I had an experience with what I guess I could only really, from my limited perspective, call a ghost. I don't, I, I, it was, uh, a really, again, really troubling experience. And, um, 
you know, a few years later, as I was doing the website, I ended up becoming a Christian. And I was really excited about it because as I, the more I got to know about the Bible, the more I felt like I had a more solid grid than I ever had before for for supernatural worldview. And what ended up surprising me the most was that Christians seem to be the least supernaturally inclined people that I could encounter. And I didn't understand that. So I kind of started to dedicate my work to exploring the supernatural through a biblical worldview. And, um, and, And that's kind of where I'm at Today, um, you know, for someone who is a Christian, I cannot, I cannot change the fact that I had this experience with a ghost in my life. And so it's been this journey of trying to explain, you know, how that fits in mm-hmm. with my current worldview. So yeah, and, and you know, I, I encounter Christians all the time that are pastors who accept the supernatural, they accept the paranormal, but they don't want to talk about it because there's this sort of unfortunate meme that if you believe in that kind of thing, then you're a little bit wacky. So that's why this is such a great endeavor that that we're all doing here, because I think it will hopefully kind of lift that stigma and bring it a little bit more into something that people can look at logically and rationally, you know, um, through actual scholarship. Yeah. I mean, it, it th- this is really going to take, like I said, we're going to cast a wide net here. Um, just based upon what the two of you have said, again, just to frame this for the audience, what we have again, are in, in Trey and Natalina, we have two experiencers, if I can use that term who have again, devoted considerable time to researching things that they're interested in. again, I don't know uh, if Brian or Chris, you know, have had any s- sort of experiences, but I, I know, you know, Chris again has put a lot of time into researching a, a range of uh, parapsychological topics and you know things like consciousness studies and whatnot, which is a, a really significant area of research uh, in the sciences. Again, a lot of people don't again realize how much work is is, is put into some of this. And over with with Brian, Brian seems to be, you know, as I've just as as I'm describing things, he seems to be an outlier, perhaps, to you know what what we're talking about. But within the entertainment industry, again, this is part of part of my rationale for asking Brian to be part of this. There there is a lot that is done deliberately with these sorts of things, and certain perspectives, certain ideas uh, are are put forth, you know, into, into the public consciousness through entertainment, through media, and people have actually studied that. So, so that is not a conspiratorial claim, uh, on my part. Uh, I, I can direct you to, to, you know, master's theses and dissertations on specifically that the role of the extraterrestrial in popular film. Okay. That just that sort of thing. And Brian is, is again, our, our insider in that world, uh, the entertainment world, and he's going to be aware again of of the deliberate messaging, how ideas are conveyed, uh, how how they're presented to the public, and it, it's going to be really good to discuss why uh, this is done. And, and you might think, oh, it's just about the money. Well, it it it's a little bit more than that. You know, there's certainly dollars to be earned, you know, through this sort of thing. 
But again, the, the research will show that, that the people who, who create this material and who steer it and who, who, who frame it for their audiences, in many cases, they are committed uh, to certain ideas for certain reasons, perhaps an experience themselves. Uh, again, perhaps really embracing the reality of, of, uh, you know, what we would loosely call a paranormal worldview for, for a very specific reason. So, our, our net here is going to be very wide, but we're going to focus in each episode on actual, again, material that has survived the, the, the peer review process, you know, things put out by academic publishers, uh, again, who, who vet what they publish. And so that is the thing that, that, from my perspective, is not being done on the internet. Uh, no, nobody does this because it's just sort of a, you know, wild west of information. I, Natalie, you used a phrase, I, I can't remember what it was, but something about an information abyss or, you know, this yeah. special place, you know, this special <laughs> hole, you know, where this kind of stuff, you know, lives and lurks. Yes. Uh, and, and that's certainly out there, you know, for popular consumption. But, you know, there, there's a little side room to that hole where, you know, real, again, real research is, is being attempted and being published. And so that, that's where we want our focus to be. That's our niche, uh, you know, as, as, as we look at, you know, some of these things. So for today, I, I had asked, uh, all of us, you know, of course, including myself to take a look at a particular website. And we're going to put this, uh, we're going to put this link on the, um, the website for the podcast for paranormal so that you'll be able to take a look at it. And I came across an article by uh, Carlos S. Alvarado, who has a PhD. Uh, he is a practicing parapsychologist. He's part of what is known as the Parapsychology Foundation. And his article was entitled, this is 2015, it's very recent, uh, last October. The, the title of the article was On the Importance of Academic Publishing. Okay, and he opens the article this way. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just, just his opening here. One frequently hears criticisms of academic publishing and of the pressures in academia to publish or perish. But while there are good critiques, I believe, along with many colleagues, that academic publishing is essential for parapsychology to move forward and to present a good image of its scientific and scholarly work. So he's, you, know, you can tell right away, he's kind of sensitive to the need uh, to publish under peer review to lend credibility to basically what he does for a living, okay, what, what his, his passion is. And one other paragraph that, that I think is, is relevant sort of to, to, to frame what the podcast is about, what, what we're going to be trying to do. Uh, Alvarado writes, these days, though, we have added, have the added problem of the proliferation of informal publishing outlets. Many field investigators study poltergeist and haunting cases that never get published or that get summarized on websites or in popular books that generally lack the details necessary to evaluate the quality of the case, much less consider the depiction of it as a scientific publication. And then there is the problem that few of the case reports posted to websites or included in popular books have had the benefit of expert peer review. Even worse, we live in a time when popular publications regularly get confused by the general public with serious academic reports. This does not raise the image of our field among mainstream scientists and does much to confuse students 
and new researchers in our field who are searching for our best evidence, unquote. Now, that, that's really what it's about because if, if, if we stick to, again, material that has really undergone vigorous peer review, that's the best actual evidence, again, that, that a detached researcher can offer. I mean, this is not to invalidate experiencers. Again, we have experiencers, you know, right here. Uh, again, we have no reason to, to doubt, you know, their experiences or anything like that. But it has to transcend that uh, for people who haven't had experiences. And so that's what we need to do. And I should say uh, about peer review, we're going to give you some examples here in a minute. But what peer review is, again, when I write an article for peer review, let's say for an academic journal, you know, I've, I've done this a couple dozen times now, you write up your article, you know, you sort of scout out, you know, the journals, you know, what, you know, what, where might this get published? Where would I like to see it published and why? And then you pick one and, you know, knowing that, oh, it might get rejected because they might have a full calendar. Somebody might not like this. Somebody might say, oh, we don't really do this sort of thing. Go over here. That's just the process. But you submit it. And then what happens is your research is taken by the editor, whoever gets it on the other end. They say, thank you. Thank you for your manuscript. And then it gets sent to blind review. They will send it to, you know, a, a two or three scholars. They have, you know, journals have whole lists of people with different areas of academic expertise. And so they'll take a look at your article and, and say, well, who are the two or three best people to read this and evaluate it? And what they're looking for is not if they agree or not. What they're looking for is, are you familiar with the field literature? Is your argu Does your argumentation uh, take into account previous studies on XYZ topic? Do you avoid other scholars or do you interact with them? Okay. Is your overall argumentation coherent? How are you using evidence? Did you overlook something? You know, or is there, we might know something that is in the publication pipeline uh, that you might know about. And so you need to interact with this before we'll take your manuscript to the next step. There's any number of sort of stop gaps along a peer review process. And eventually you get feedback from the editors. They either say we're interested or, or we're not. If they tell you not, they'll, they'll, they'll typically tell you why. Uh, you, you need to go back to the drawing board or this other journal over here it might be better, you know, better place to submit it, you know, whatever. And then you'll usually have homework. You know, here are the comments of your reviewers. They will not give you the names. And you need to address these things and then send the manuscript back and then we'll have a, a, a final go through it. Again, this is a process of taking your work and letting other experts see it. They don't know who you are because you're not allowed to submit your name or your affiliation or anything like that. They don't know who you are and you don't know who they are. It's kind of comical. I've submitted articles before and gotten things like back in peer review from comments, things like, you know, you you got to make sure that you cite Heiser's article on this or that because you know he said thus this that and the other thing and I you know you, you typically try not to quote yourself in articles and I I look at that and I kind of chuckle and the editor I, I mean I've gotten I've gotten comments back from the editor who who of course reads the comments and like oh you'll like this one you know <laughs> you know that that kind of thing because they'll they're familiar with what you've done and they want to make sure that you're covering your your bases it's just they don't know who you are. And you don't know who they are, but you, you correspond anonymously. But the, again, the, the, the leading point here is that if, 
this is what I tell people all the time, you know, whether it's ancient alien nonsense or, you know, any, anything, just, it, it can be biblical studies. It can be, you know, paranormal stuff. Have, has this person that you want me to watch this video or read this article, have they submitted this to peer review? And you, you know, oh, well, I, you know, I don't do that because I'm so brilliant. I'm so misunderstood or they'll never publish my work because it contradicts, you know, what everybody else believes and blah, 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 blah. Okay. Again, I, I can, that is, that's part of the academic process. If, if I gave you 50 articles on the authorship of Proverbs, you're, you're going to get eight different views. Nobody cares that they're different views. What they care about is, are you, are you handling the data well? Are you thinking clearly? Have you accounted for prior studies? That sort of thing. If you are afraid to submit your work to the review of experts, I don't need to read your work. Again, and what we want to do here is winnow the material that you could be exposed to, to you know, separate the wheat from the chaff. I mean, if, if you want to know, is there any real evidence for precognition? Is there any real evidence for ghosts? Is there any real evidence for fill in the blank? That is the purpose of this podcast. We will direct you to that. And we will discuss it, you know, on, on individual episodes to, to help you sort of navigate, you know, what, what was this study trying to do? What did they figure out? You know, what are the problems? What are the successes? That sort of thing, just so that you know it's there. Again, we're not, we're not trying to grant degrees here or anything like that. This is just discovery. The paranormal is about discovery. Discovery of, of the effort that a lot of people have put into researching this kind of material. And so, again, that is the difference. So I, I want to jump into some samples. Did, uh, I'll, we'll jump in this way. Did either of you read uh, anything – there, there's a link on that on that uh, first web page, the little article by Alvarado. He actually has three or four links to repositories online where you can freely access PDF articles on all sorts of things, uh, all sorts of topics. In other words, they they were able to get permission to post uh, a lot of research that has been conducted. Um, you know that the kind of stuff that he wants to see happen. And I asked uh, Natalina and Trey you know, to, to sort of muck around in there. And I promised I would do the same thing, pull out a few uh, articles uh, just to see, Hey, what's out there. And did anything sort of strike you as interesting? So you guys tell me, you know, I, it's cause I could jump in here with a couple things, but I want to give you the floor first. Did you come across anything that you thought, Hmm, boy, that, that sounds kind of interesting. And did you take a look? Well, Mike, before we get into the articles, I have a question about the sure. whole peer review process. Now, is it a lot of paperwork? I mean, why I've read some of these articles or, or I've read in the past that a lot of studies and research have been done. They just didn't follow through and complete the process <laughs> of submitting their work and stuff. So is it yeah. a paper flow issue? I mean, is it a tedious that, chore? That, that is really an interesting question because it it's not so much the work uh, even though it, it it is it is a lot of work to produce a scholarly article um, because it, it takes a lot of research time, but but the real issue is how long it takes for your own research to appear in a journal. Uh, I submitted uh, an article about 
oh, four or five months ago. Um, it's supposed to appear in the first quarter of 2016. So you're talking at least six months. And some journals, if they're really sort of heavy hitters, um, there, there are certain journals, you know, in, in, in biblical and theological studies that they'll accept your article, but they'll tell you it, it, this might not appear for another year or year and a half because they have a backlog. E- each journal uh, issue has a page count and they can only fit in a certain number of pages per issue and things just get pushed down the road. Now that, that has, in our day and age, that sounds absolutely primitive. Uh, and antiquated. And a lot of people in the field would, would agree with that. And so what you're seeing, and it really started in the hard sciences, uh, you're seeing peer review being taken to the web in the form of open access journals, uh, where there is no page count. Uh, so you're, 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 the reason for delaying your article is sort of taken away. We it does, we're not going to send it to a printer. Okay, we're not going to have to pay printing costs. You know, to, we're not going to have to. We don't, we're not budgeted for X number of dollars per print run per issue. We, we don't have to worry about that anymore. It's going straight to the web. It's going to go through the same process, but it now becomes an e-journal. And and you know, in biblical studies, there aren't that many uh, journals who have seen fit to do that. And part of the reason is because a lot of a lot of the societies that publish journals, they cover their costs when libraries purchase subscriptions. Uh, and if and if you're putting it on the web, well, there's, you know, who's going to pay for it now? You know, that, that sort of thing. And then you have some elitists, you know, kind of like – it's kind of like baseball. You know, you have, the, you have your purists. Oh, the designated hitter has just destroyed the game, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, you, you have these, we, we should be going back to Abner Doubleday, you know, kind of thing. That's real baseball. Well, you have the same thing in scholarly publishing, you know, God forbid that we would allow access in, in digital form. They need to go to dusty old libraries and pull that thing off the shelf. That's just the way we've always done it. We've been doing that way for two centuries and by golly, we're not going to change it. You know, so th- there's actually that sort of friction in, in biblical studies. You've, you've got a handful uh, I, I don't think it's double digits yet uh, of electronic journals that are serious journals in biblical studies. I can think of three or four off the top of my head. Uh, and even the ones that are print, they'll, they'll put it online, but only after the print edition appears in a library. Uh, it, it, it's just an odd sort of thing. So the real snag is the time. A lot of people don't want don't want it to take a year before their research shows up. Now, the hard sciences, I'll say one more thing about this. I, I had a talk with Hugh Ross one time. Uh, I asked, this was at the years back at the, the God Man ET thing. You know, we, we, we had dinner and I said, uh, so what do you, what do you actually do? You know, what, what's your day like? And he told me how, about how the, the, the board of his nonprofit, you know, divvied up his time and whatnot. And he got, I think it was, I don't know. 40 or 50% of his week was, was research, which I thought found, sounded glorious, you know, but they had hired a couple full-time researchers. And I said, well, why, why do you guys, why do you need two full-timers plus you to do research? And what I didn't realize and what he told me was he said in the hard sciences, you guys in biblical studies, your journals put out anywhere from four to maybe six issues per year, quarterly or a little bit more. He said, in the hard sciences, 
every hard science, astronomy, astrophysics, physics, chemistry, biology, biochemistry, all of them, put out journals on a weekly basis. And he said, every one of those issues is four or 500 pages. That the volume of literature in the hard sciences is overwhelming. It is massive. Uh, that's why it takes teams of people to literally just go through the literature and keep up with who, you know, people, experts in your field, what they're doing, what their grad students are doing, what some research foundation is doing. It is an enormous task. Now, you know, in the case of parapsychology, you don't, they're not producing 500 pages a week just in that one, you know, just in one journal. But these are the sorts of things that impede scholarship from getting out. Um, in the humanities and, and it's parapsychology, a small field, you don't have that that much of a problem, but it still is a problem. Now, do these journals publish all the research that they get? I mean, is there some that just are turned down? Yeah, they they, they will they will turn down things because of volume. Uh, a, a, a person submitting something will hear that your your article's not going to appear for another year, and he'll say, "I withdraw it. I'm going to go submit it somewhere else." Um, so they'll, they'll lose articles that way. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, it's just a problem. Yeah. It seems like, you know, how do we move this forward? Because this podcast is trying to produce basically what you just duplicate what, you know, Ross is doing, um, over there with this. And, and what's frustrating is the journal of parapsychology at the Ryan Institute. You know, I want to go back and there's some journals there. I got to pay $35 plus. Yeah. To get well, access to I, this, and it's I just... can typically get free access. To that. But still, <laughs> Again, if you're a person that's interested in this, I know you you, you, can't, you can't do it. It's it's almost as if academia is 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 off limits to the lay people. Yeah, my my goal personally for the podcast is whatever the topic is to find at least one article on the topic that is accessible for free on the internet. I don't I don't want to fall into the trap of each episode. Uh, referring people to things they can't get. I, so, so my goal personally is to find at least one uh, article that will be part of our discussion. And I, and I, when I think of each episode, I think I'm not going to burden people with reading, you know, a hundred pages, you know, we're, I don't know what the, I think we'll probably do an episode a month or something like that. But I want to, I want to make it about half that. And so I, I'm probably going to be picking two to three articles per per episode and I want at least one of them to be something that the average person you don't have to have an institutional license uh, you know to a, an academic library so that you can get this for free uh, some databases public libraries will use and so people will still be able to get access to the material but I, I want to do my best to check that up front so that people can get access to something well maybe we should start our own online journal paranormal <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, something. It's very if we frustrating. We get 100 episodes under, under our belt. Maybe, you know, maybe we can, uh, you know, form a board that people will get interested to do that. I mean, you never know. It just, you know, I, I mean, I've been asked, you know, to be on editorial boards uh, before. And, and usually they, they, they try to not make it a burden uh, for reviewers, you know, because that, that's the first thing I would ask, you know, like, well, what, what, do, you, what do you need me to do? And he, well, you, you might see two or three articles a year, you know, because we've got 25 people here. If it's something up your alley, we'll send it to you. You know, so that, that's normally the way it works, but you got to have 25 or 30 people because chances are 
scholars are notoriously overcommitted when it comes to writing and publishing. They don't want to ever say no because of the publisher parish mentality, because it looks, you know, good for a salary review. I mean, any number of reasons or ego, you know, um, they're notorious for this. And the, the job I have now, I've, I've, I've had to fire scholars from projects because they just, they're overcommitted. They're, they're wonderful. I, I fired a professor who teaches at Cambridge once, you know, it's like, and the guy's so, so nice. And I recruited him, you know, but I had to dump him because it's like everybody else is turning their work in except for you, you know? So it just happens. It, it, you know, if you get a lot of people on board, you could, you know, we could pull something like that off, but that's, that's pretty, pretty forward thinking, but that's why you're here. Jerry. Okay. Well, I'm, <laughs> since I'm the IT guy, tech guy, I'm telling you right now, we're going to be doing an online yeah. journal something because I think it's so silly. It's such a silly little game. It, it, you know, it, it is because, you know, people wanted, if I had, it, yeah. It, and there's, and there's this part of it is ego thing. Like the reviewers are like, Oh, you know, boy, this, you know, this is going to rock some boats, but it's good research. You know, do I want to take the plunge on this? And, and, and some of them will say, yes, this should be published. You know, can I, can I like slip a footnote of, of reservation in here, but this deserves to be published even though I don't agree. And I want, they don't say this, but I want my colleagues back at Harvard to know, you know, that I, I mean, they'll, you'll see stuff like that, but it'll, it'll get through, but journals will allow professors and reviewers, uh, to maybe write a rejoinder or put in a footnote. And, and so that, that, again, that's the way it, it works, but all of that holds up the process. All of it holds up. It's just a cumulative effect of holding up the process. Yeah, I think it's just got to change with the advent of the internet. It just seems like that's the days are numbered of doing it that way. That's it, just my opinion. Yeah, yeah well, it, things are shifting. Some fields shift more slowly than others. And uh, biblical studies is kind of notorious, you know, in, in this area, but it's, it's actually improved in the last five or six years. I mean, I have to give, give some credit where it's due here. But again, that, that's what we're trying to, you know, what we want to do. So if, unless you have another question, can either of you, you know, give the audience sort of a sampling of something you came across in one of the articles that you thought was really interesting? Yeah, I can, Mike. Um, you know, part of all of this is really helpful too for people like myself, who is an active blogger in this, in, you know, talking about the supernatural to know where to look and know where to access information like this so that we can link back to it and, you know, lead our audiences to reliable information. And one of the things that I read in this list that you sent me that really interested me, um, well, in Brian, it is a telepathic transfer of emotional information in humans. Um, and it was published in the journal of psychology in 1979. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't wait to hear about this because I, I didn't pick that one. <laughs> <Go> ahead. <laughs> that one jumped right out at me because, you know, I've always – you hear about things like um, poltergeist, for example, and it's so often uh, linked to maybe an emotional teenager in the home or something like that. Mm-hmm. And all of that is so much anecdotal e- evidence, but there seems to be this emotionality link to a lot of paranormal phenomena. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw that title, I, I opened it up right away. So – um, you know, in the absence of Brian Gadawa, I'm going to make a film reference here. Um, the very 
scholarly pursuit of paranormal knowledge, Ghostbusters, <laughs> the original <laughs> Ghostbusters movie. Ah, uh, yes. Were... <laughs> <laughs> trying to you... sound like an elitist here. Ah, oh, yes. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but the reason I bring it up is because at the very beginning of that movie, you know, there's this scene where you see a psychic test be- taking place with flashcards. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, there's a receiver and there's a sender and the sender is looking at a flashcard and trying to send to the receiver the image. And this is based on obviously real mm-hmm. tests that have happened. Um, this particular article cites those tests and kind of the sketchy results that came from it. There was some evidence of psi, but you know, it was, it was kind of a crapshoot really. But mm-hmm. this article talks about how they took those types of studies and, and tried to sort of add something to it that might increase uh, the results, change the results a little bit. And what they did was they tried to make what the sender, the sender of uh, supposed telepathic information, mm-hmm. uh, viewing something that was emotionally jarring, whether it was, mm-hmm. a, you know, a pic- a movie or something like that, something that would generate an emotional response, and then try to send that information to somebody who was in a very relaxed state, maybe even sleeping. And th- what they found was that they were able to generate a lot more affirmative results of telepathic information. And so there was obviously a correlation between something, an image being transmitted by somebody who had a strong emotional response at the moment mm-hmm. that image was being seen. And it increased the likelihood that the receiver would be able to, um, you know, receive something, whether it was yeah. an image or an, a, an emotional response that correlated to what the sender was experiencing right. for, at that for, moment. So for some reason, if, if it was, if they if they had a strong emotional attachment or, or an emotional, wh- yeah. whatever, whatever the image was, they had a strong emotional effect on the sender that, that just seemed to produce more results than something innocuous. Yes. They tried, you know, whether um, they were shown something very violent so the mm-hmm. sender would have a very visceral reaction to it or something, you know, sexual or whatever, something that would give them a strong emotional response. And they found that it definitely provided more compelling uh, response than just the, the sort of standard flashcard um psi experiments that that were sort of part of the original protocol Mm -hmm. i found that so fascinating because you hear so often that there is this emotional relation to paranormal phenomenon so to read this article that shows that there was legitimate scientific experiments that kind of verify Mm -hmm. that idea you know now as someone who might let's say i'm writing an article about somebody who claims to have a poltergeist experience and they relate it to an emotional thing i can cite something like this to show you know there's a reason to believe that emotions do affect um paranormal activity right so that Mm -hmm. was really fascinating to me um i kind of gobbled that up and it makes me want to see what else (laughs) you know if there's other things that that relate to that it was really interesting to me well i i read one that that sort of treaded on the same area, uh, but it didn't use the word telepathy uh, in the article. I, I read one called Further Possible Physiological Connectedness 
between identical twins. Mm. And it, it referenced the, the London study, a, a prior study that was done in London. So what they did was they chose monozygotic, in other words, identical twins. And they, the idea was we're going we're gonna to separate them so that it's this, they're getting into this non-locality. So it, it is telepathic, even though they didn't use the, that word in the title. And so since they were twins and since they were identical, again, they had, they had, you know, shared the same womb and all that kind of stuff. They, 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 they wanted to see if there was, you know, sort of a significant statistical uh, relationship where, where one would be stimulated in some way, would the other one feel it? And the, the, the article goes into, you know, how they, how they could time, you know, how they record the timing of the events and what kind of things they used. And it, and it was, you know, you know, things that were either really shocking, uh, surprises. I'll, I'll, I'll just read one little s- section here. It says, All, although the overall results of the Copenhagen study were non-significant, one individual twin session of the six that were usable did give significant results with the expert correctly identifying three of the five windows for five shocks or surprises. Now, what they did was they had these two twins, one with, you know, in different locations. And so they would, something would happen to the one twin and then the other twin, the one that was the quote receiver was hooked up to a polygraph machine. So that would, that would record any sort of variation in, you know, any, you know, how polygraphs do, you know, any sort of nervous response or any sort of apprehension, anything with breathing, brain waves, they, they had, they had all of it hooked up so that it would produce a, a written record. And then they had a polygraphed expert come in blind, you know, didn't know, you know, didn't know the people, didn't know the, the, the subjects, the receiver, the sender, anything like that. He would look at the polygraph record and mark at what times there was some sort of unusual response. And then they would, then they would try to correlate the times that were marked on the polygraph to the actual time when the other, the other twin was stimulated. And it, it this study notes that f- for one pair, uh, they actually produced a, a lot of hits in this. And it was a pair of twins. It says here, the pair of twins who produced most of the hits in this series was the youngest in the sample. They were both 25. And one of them was seven months pregnant. So in the interview, the non-pregnant twin told how they had led independent lives, but her belief in twin telepathy, so there the the word occurs in the article, had suddenly increased because of her remarkable sensitivity to her twin sister's state during pregnancy. And that led them to volunteer, you know, for the study. And then they, of course, they had to be vetted and whatnot. But but the one that produced the highest results were were these, these women one of whom was pregnant and they were the youngest. And that's how they set up the study. Again, it, it, it's just really interesting. Like mm-hmm. why, how would that work? <laughs> yeah. You know, what, why, why did, why was there a difference between these two and, and all, all that sort of thing? So yeah, what you were saying reminded me of, of this one because of, of the way they had to, to try to stimulate some response in the one, would it register in the other, uh, that kind of thing. Trey, did you come across anything? I, I did. I, I was in the mind matter matter uh-huh. interaction section with the quantum physics. Okay. And I read uh, two articles. 
2015 and 2016, so the recent articles about the psychophysical interactions with the single photon double split optical system and the psychophysical modulation of fringe visibility in a distant double split optical system. So basically, put that in the, into lay language. <laughs> if, you're, if you're familiar with the uh, the photons, when you shoot a photon, and if you don't observe it, it's a wave. But then if you observe it, it acts as if it's being observed and it's aware then all of a sudden it's a particle so basically they did the uh, experiments two of them to investigate the von neumann's proposal that an extra physical process is involved in the measurement of a quantum system and an online experiment was conducted using a double split optical system so basically they the first experiment they had people in the room physically observing uh whether consciousness or just the mere act of physical observance changes the behavior of these quantum particles. So they were, they were looking at the people in the room looking at the particles. Right. So if you don't observe, have, have you all heard of these experiments? I mean, it's, yeah, this is sort of the, the standard quantum exactly, you know, theory exactly. stuff. Yeah. Right, right, right. So I find that stuff very fascinating that an actual particle can behave one way. And then when you, the mere act of observing it, it behaves differently. And it becomes a, a, a matter rather like than a it, wave like function. It, like it knows it's being yes, watched. like it has <laughs> conscious. And they and they did an experiment over the internet rather than actually observing it, just seeing whether if human conscious, just the mere thought of thinking yeah. of it, changes it. And I don't think they got mixed results. I don't think it was as strong as the act of observing. Mm-hmm. So they were trying to see if just the, the physical act of observ- observance versus the consciousness, you know, what, what, that's what they were studying. And, mm-hmm. uh, I think it has stronger results, lots of math in this. Um, oh yeah, and the re- I can, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so that I find that very fascinating. There's an entire realm of physics that we just do not understand. And, uh, and we can actually observe it and measure it and study it. And we have no, answers for it it's great mm-hmm. i love it mm-hmm. there i read the uh the one by pim von lommel uh, who's a a pretty famous uh, nde researcher i i've read his book um his book was called consciousness beyond life he's a he's a cardiac uh, physician and he sort of became famous because he he conducted a Oh, uh, a study of people who had, you know, experienced cardiac arrest and, of course, survived, but they had near-death experiences. So he, this is something he encountered a lot in his profession as a physician, and he got interested when he started hearing about their stories of, you know, what they saw or heard uh, either, you know, in some other place, for lack of a better term, or even in hospitals uh, where where they shouldn't have been able to see or hear something like different rooms and whatnot. So uh, these these stories of being having their consciousness separated from their body and yet being, you know, fully active, sort of drew him in. He became famous for for doing this study with several hundred patients in the Netherlands that eventually got got published in the Lancet, which was a very prestigious uh, medical journal back in two thousand one. Well, this one. Uh, is in something called World Futures, published by Routledge, which is a pretty well-known academic publisher, and it's near-death experience, consciousness, and the brain. And so, for for people who wouldn't want to wade through von Lommel's book, it's like, I don't know, four hundred pages or whatever, and it's very clinical. Uh, this is kind of a 
a, a shorter, briefer kind of foray into this. But in this, he tries to sort of connect it with, uh, you know, the whole quantum idea. Like in, in the article, just for instance, he, he says here on one page, uh, according to Gallup, 4 to 5% of the total population in the Western world, um, you know, may have experienced an, an NDE, that sort of thing. Uh, again, so small, but if you, if you do the numbers, that, that's pretty significant. Um, he talks about different theories. Again, their own was 344 uh, survivors of cardiac arrest in 10 Dutch hospitals. And again, he was trying to figure out, you know, what, not only, not really how did this work, but, but why, what were the parameters? What were the, the conditions under which people had NDEs? And then to try to take that information and figure out what in the world was going on. Well, in this article, he spends a lot of, uh, he, well, he devotes some space to neurophysiology. And this is really where sort of the rubber meets the road in, in, in modern consciousness studies that there's this idea that you are your brain. Uh, that your consciousness is produced by your brain. There is no soul. There is no, you know, separate reality from uh, the, this physical organ we call the brain. And von Lommel does not believe that uh, based on his research. But he says here, complete cessation of cerebral circulation is found in induced cardiac arrest due to ventricular fibrillation during threshold testing at implantation of internal defibrillators. So while they're doing this procedure, you know, you can, they go into cardiac arrest and then you have cerebral circulation, you know, is shut off. This complete cerebral ischemic model can be used to study the result of anoxia in the brain. And he talks about artery flow and all this stuff, but here's his, his, the point I want to focus on electrical activity in both cerebral cortex and deeper structures of the brain has been shown to be absent after a very short period of time. Monitoring of the electrical activity of the cortex, an EEG, has shown that the first ischemic changes in the EEG are detected an average of six and a half seconds from the onset of circulatory arrest. That, that is, that is really fast. You know, when, when the, your brain, the the electrical current that is required for brain function is, is cut off. He, he, he adds, from studies of induced cardiac arrest, we know that in our Dutch prospective study of patients who survived cardiac arrest, as well as in the American study, then he cites that, not only a, t- not only total lack of electrical activity of the cortex, must have been the only possibility, but also the abolition of brainstem activity. However, patients with an NDE can report a clear consciousness. And because of the occasional and verifiable out-of-body experiences, like the one involving, you know, and then he mentions one in their study, we know that the NDE must happen during the period of unconsciousness and not in the first or last seconds of cardiac arrest. So this is an article where he goes through, again, what you would typically sort of experience as the, as the typical arguments. Um, you know, that this, this must be some function of the brain, you know, this, this NDE experience and von Lommel saying, ah, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense because what's the brain running on? It's not running on anything. <laughs> And then he, he goes in to speculate, uh, he, he proposes, he, he brings up Roger Penrose, who's a famous quantum physicist, and he, he says this, could consciousness and memories be the product or the result of constant 
constantly changing electromagnetic fields, again, in, in the brain. Quantum physicist Roger Penrose argues that algorithmic computations cannot simulate mathematical reasoning. Berkovich has calculated that the brain has an absolutely inadequate capacity to produce and store all the informational processes of all our memories with associative thoughts from one's life. We would need 10 to the 24th power operations per second, which is absolutely impossible for our neurons to accomplish. So again, this is very, this is clinical talk, but again, the point of it is that he's saying, you know, we, we gotta, we gotta come up with a different model. And, and Von Lommel proposed uh, a model that I've often thought about because it, I think it has some explanatory power to it. Instead of the brain producing consciousness, okay, the, because we know scientifically that, that consciousness and the brain are, are connected. Okay, in, in, again, the normative experience, you know, of, of a person's life. All right. There's, there's this connection. You, if you, you know, if you damage the brain, you're going to, you know, something is going to be lost in consciousness. And I don't mean being unconscious. I mean, brain function will affect the sort of the kind of person you are. And there's all these studies about, you know, the person had a brain injury and then they couldn't remember, you know, who their, their wife was. Or the person had a brain injury and they had this advanced ability you know, to do something or whatever. So there's this connection. Everybody recognizes that. But the materialists say, well, this proves that your brain produces consciousness. And so the, the, the idea of conscious existence apart from the body, apart from the brain, is a myth. Von Lommel is basically saying, well, what if the brain is like a radio? In other words, there are radio waves out there floating around in the air but you'll never know they're there unless you have a radio that functions properly. The, the, the waves sort of filter through the radio and then you, the person controlling the radio, know that the radio waves are there because you pick up stations. So what if the brain is this sort of kind of way station or this, this mediating thing, but consciousness exists independent of that? So he you know, he talks a little bit about uh, the model and, and he talks about non-locality and you know if 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 this model is real then you know what we think of as consciousness or the soul has an independent existence. So what's really interesting for theology and this is when we when we devote an episode or two or five episodes to this we want to get into this. I'm not going to get into it now. This is just a teaser. <laughs> but if if that's true, then. Ideas like pre-existence of the soul become kind of interesting because let's say your consciousness is, to use the quantum terminology, there's, there, there's you, there, there, there's your body that's you and that's in one place and your consciousness is in another. But they're connected uh, in, in some way. One filters the other. Um, and, and you can, you know, do you know, something to one and it affects the other, that kind of thing. So trying to bring in this quantum theory into it, uh, it, it's it sort of, and Von Lommel's very plain. He, he's there. I'm not saying I'm there, but he, he thinks that the soul, human souls and consciousness are eternal uh, or at least everlasting. And so they, that's why we have this independent existence and the brain makes it known, makes it come alive. It gives it a, an outlet for, for being embodied and interacting with other embodied beings and that sort of thing. So you get into all this, this kind of stuff 
And it, it just when I re- whenever I read something like that, I think of Origin because you know, Origin was the the first guy that sort of popularized or at least tried to popularize the the pre-existence of the soul idea. Because in theology, the other two options are God creates the soul and sticks it in the body, or the parents through procreation uh, not only produce the biology but also produce the soul. And it's kind of interesting, that, that view, which is probably the most common view, it's called traditionism. That's actually very consistent with a materialistic worldview, <laughs> because if if that's what's happening, then the, how do we really? What's the basis for for separating soul and body? I mean, you you can you can say that oh, after they die, they get separated. I mean, you can say that, and that's what traditionists do. But it it, it sort of drifts over into another camp. And of course, the problem with the other view, which is called creationism, is that uh, I think kind of a messed up view of, of Romans five. But they'll say, well, for the soul to be estranged from God, the soul to be sinful, then if God creates the soul and it's automatically sinful, then nothing that Adam did really mattered. God essentially had to had to make it. He had to create it lost. That kind of thing. And so Origen, you know, came up with a different you know view, and and his his view was put down by Augustine. He he was eventually declared a heretic and then reinstated later. And lots of church historical politics went into this, and people today have used this to justify reincarnation. That is not what Origen is saying. Origen isn't saying one so gets a different body and then a different one, then a different one, and a different one. He's not saying that at all. He's just talking about uh, soul uh, pre-existing what the, the life that you, you are given under God's providence, that kind of thing. But it, you can see where this just takes you really off, you know, into, into some fairly significant, fairly heady theology. Mm. Very interesting. Any, any other, any, anything else you guys, you know, want to chime in? We'll just give a couple more examples. And I think people will get an idea of what, you know, what, what the goal of the, of the podcast is. Anything else you read? Well, after reading the math from the, quantum <laughs> experiments don't, my head exploded so well yeah i'm gonna skip all that i'm not i'm i don't do math i i'm, I'm looking for what did they try to do and what did they find out so i'll just i'll send the math to you i'll just copy and paste it <laughs> here you go dre work on this equation i think my math days are long gone you know i, I wanted to major in math i really enjoyed it physics and math were my thing but Computers came a calling, so that's the way I went. Yeah, well, that's kind of sad. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Natalina. Did, did you uh, you want to well, chime in with another one? The, sure. You know, this is probably I don't know how it will be received, but one thing that really stuck out to me as I was kind of going through the list of of um, articles was that there were a number of them that dealt with animals. Well. And um, there was one that was called Testing a Return Anticipating Dog. And it was <laughs> Rupert Sheldrake and Pamela Smart. Mm-hmm. And I'm an animal person, so I was drawn right into this. But you know, in sort of the paranormal world, there's so much um, talk about people who say like, you know, an, a cat was left in one state and somehow a year later they show up mm-hmm. on the other side of the country and how did they find it, you know. Right. And this this article talks about um, experiments with these different dogs who were able to anticipate when their owners were going to come home. And it was really interesting how the experiment was set up because they brought skeptics in, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, um, see if they could debunk the original findings, which were that 
80% of the occasions when the owner was out, the dogs anticipated the return by going to wait at the window. So when the skeptics tried to replicate it, uh, the, their idea was that it, w- it had to do with routine. You know, the dogs mm-hmm. just kind of knew this is what time my owner comes home from work or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they found that it was not um, – that that wasn't the case because the – he still anticipated the return when they messed up, when they messed with the routine. And so, um, you know, they, they would change the routine (laughs) and the people would come home at different times and the dogs still somehow knew it within this very specified window, you know, the, the people were told, okay, leave at this specific time. And then there's like an 11 minute window where you are now considered on the way home. And the dogs would know. They would know in like this actually surprisingly large percentage of times that the owners were on their way home. And I don't know how that can really help us understand human sigh unless it is something that the human – it's not necessarily something that the dog is doing but that the human is transmitting. The, you know, I'm coming home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the animal is picking up on it. But what I think it speaks to is, again, this idea that there is this, um, there, there is this supernatural or paranormal, uh, ability for an entity, <laughs> whether it's a human or an animal, to communicate from across distances. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, so many of these different experiments that I read about, the, the results were maybe something like, 25% successful, 30% successful, which is huge, really, mm-hmm. statistically. But how interesting was it that when they did it with an animal, they had results in like the eight, 78 and 80% mm-hmm. accuracy. Um, it, 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 I think it's, it's just interesting because so often you, uh, you hear about people relating it to this connection between animals and humans. And I had no idea that there was actually scientific <laughs> experiments carried yeah. out that proved that that was, I mean, really proved with, with something like 80%. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> amazingly high. Yeah. And they tried it with different dogs. Some dogs seem to be more in tune than others. Yeah, I, wanna, but... I wanted to try it on my pug because yeah. <laughs> my, my pug is only aware of where its next meal is coming from. And, <laughs> well... <laughs> and, and that's just fine with us. Well, there might be some correlation because they say people kind of look like their pets too. <laughs> So they kind of just start to morph I, into I do one not look entity. Like Samuel L. Jackson. <laughs> I do not look like that. <laughs> did they did they speculate at all? Like what? I mean, did they did they get into? Well, here are four possible reasons this might be what it is, or did they do any of that? Or you know, most of what I read, they just openly acknowledged that it was unclear why this response was happening. Mm-hmm. You know, they use terms like, you know, this cannot be explained, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, as I said, they had, they had welcomed these skeptics in who thought they had it all figured out that it was right. related to routine or even scent you know, smelling from over across the distance or whatever. All of that was kind of excluded because it was able to be removed from the realm of possibilities. And um, I don't know, they, they call they refer to this as a return anticipating dog. <laughs> and 
I don't know. I found that incredibly fascinating um, that they they had something like they reviewed like 500 case histories, it says. And there seems to be this pattern of dogs. They begin waiting shortly before or after their owner sets off from wherever it is that they're coming home from. There's mm-hmm. just no there's no logical way that that dog should be able to know that this person has just now gotten in their car 20 miles away, you know, and started mm-hmm. coming home. That it kind of just blew my mind. It it was it was a fascinating and there's a number of articles in this list that refer to these re- return anticipating mm-hmm. dogs. I think it's a great example. Oh, yeah. Something's yeah, we're, happening. Yeah, we're we're definitely going to have to devote a, an episode or two to that one. That, I love that. That. <laughs> that really is. That really is. I mean, I we we have two dogs, and and the one you know sits sits in the front room a lot, and you know, granted, constantly distracted by leaves and squirrels and whatever, you know, all that kind of thing. He's a retriever, but but. He will he will exhibit a certain behavior where where I know if I'm sitting there you know on the couch or whatever it's like okay you know Drina's going to be home in a few minutes you know you just sort of unconsciously yeah you know clue in to to what the dog to, to the dog's behavior that that's mm-hmm. it's a reliable signal it is or it, another example would be that if I have to get up at a particular time in the morning and I'm really bad at waking up even with alarms and it's all you know because I don't have a regular schedule it varies what time I need to be up. But if I have something really important to be awake for, it seems like without fail, my cat will ensure that I am awake at that time. Like really within like, you know, 30 minutes of needing to be awake, he will come and wake me up. And I've always marveled at it. How did he know? You know, yesterday I didn't have to be awake till 10. Today I had to be awake at 8 and he woke me up at 730. It's just something uninteresting. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's really, that's really interesting. I, I'm kind of into, uh, animal cognition. Mm-hmm. This isn't, this isn't exactly that. This is something even, even more remarkable. Uh, but yeah, I, there are things like that that I, I find really, really intriguing. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, really, that, that, that's just good stuff. That's yeah. really good stuff. I, I wish I'd have, I wish my eye would have fallen on that. You know, I'll have to go back and read it. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I I think you know this is this is a good it's a good time to wrap up you know the first episode because this it, again our goal today was just to illustrate what it is we're going to be doing we, each each episode will focus on one topic and you know we'll announce that at the end of the, the either the end of the previous episode or in in this case I think our, our first you know single topic episode you're just going to have to uh, you know be following you know either myself on Twitter or my blog or Natalina's, you know, sites, because, you know, we'll, we'll figure that out, but the normal pattern will be, you know, we'll, we'll try to, uh, be organized and come up with a, uh, with a specific schedule and let you know what's, what's coming down the road. But again, this is it. We're going to take one topic. We're going to discuss two or three, you know, articles pertinent to that topic, two or three studies. And like I said, we're going to cast a very wide net, uh, to, to all of this. And, you know, just the name of the game is just exposure, just letting you know this stuff's out there and hopefully getting uh, listeners to as much of it as we possibly can. Trey, do you want to, you have anything else to add? And I'm sorry we missed uh, Brian and, and Chris, but, you know, we'll, we will get them and then allow them to introduce their, themselves. But 
um, you know, I think this is going to be the format, you know, that we, we adopt. No, I'm excited to be a part of this and hopefully we can get some interviews with the people who are actually writing these articles yep. and doing the research. I think that would be awesome to hear it straight from the researchers themselves. And, uh, secretly my long-term goal is to create an online journal to make sure all of this research is available. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, my what? secret mission. Don't tell anybody. Yeah. We've, we <laughs> don't we, tell the journals. We'll try not to let that. Yeah, don't, yeah. don't tell the journals. <laughs> No, but it's good. I think a lot of researchers would, would be thrilled that somebody's paying attention, you know, and, and sees value in, in what they're doing. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that that will happen. You know, we'll, we'll be able to get in contact with, with some, uh, you know, people who are producing the research. And, you know, especially if, like, just to use this one as, as an illustration, uh, Natalina's uh, mention of the, the, the dog article, but like, hey, what, what, what are those people who did that research, what are they doing now? Yeah. Like what, what, what do they do beyond this just to sort of update, you know, it on. So, you know, you do a show on a topic and then you get the person, you know, who's, who's into this field of research or produced that article. And, okay. What, what's the latest? I think that would be a, a really good thing to do too. Mm. Great. Yeah. Yes. Well, thanks for, for joining us again. This is the, has been the inaugural episode of paranormal and we're going to be doing what nobody does. We're going to take you into the world of the paranormal for the real stuff, not just speculation, but the real research that's being done.